This is Andrew Litton, music director of New York City Ballet, and welcome to See the Music. Today's podcast is a broadcast from the See the Music series that we do live at the Koch Theater, immediately preceding a performance of a ballet. During the presentation, the orchestra pit raises to reveal the entire New York City Ballet Orchestra in action and is always appreciated by the audience. Today, we are featuring George Balanchine's 1956 ballet, Allegro Brilliant, set to the music of Tchaikovsky's last work, his Piano Concerto No. 3. This See the Music dates from 2018. Your host and conductor is Maestro Daniel Capps, and the piano soloist is Elaine Shelton. Please enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to New York City Ballet. Uh, my name is Daniel Caps, and before we begin this afternoon's performance, I have the privilege of a few moments of your time for what we call See the Music, a chance to explore a little bit of the music that we'll hear this afternoon. We're going to have a look at the first ballet on the program, Balanchine's Allegro Brilliante, choreographed in 1956 to the music of Tchaikovsky's third piano concerto. Now, I imagine that the music we played as we rose up from the pit was familiar to many of you here, but some may have noticed the distinct lack of piano. Now, to discover what's going on here, we need to take a closer look at the background of Tchaikovsky's music. The truth is that what you've just heard was not the third piano concerto, but was actually the opening of Tchaikovsky's Symphony in E-flat, which he wrote in 1892, but which he never finished. We know from letters he wrote 
that he'd set aside the months of July and August that year to complete the symphony. But we also know that he later bemoaned having to spend those very same months exclusively on correcting the proofs for another of his works that premiered in 1892, which I suspect you may know, a little something called The Nutcracker. <laughs> Once the music from The Nutcracker was complete, Tchaikovsky returned to his symphony. And by November, he had finished the, the draft score of the entire symphony and fully orchestrated most of the first movement. However, come December, Tchaikovsky had become rather disillusioned with his symphony. Uh, in his own words, he, he felt it was rather impersonal and lacking introspection. His desire to compose something more emotional, something more passionate, saw him set the symphony aside and begin work on what would become his now famous sixth symphony, the Pathétique. However, he didn't destroy the manuscript of the symphony flat. Instead, the following spring, in 1893, he set about transcribing three movements of it into a piano concerto, which would become the last piece, the last orchestral piece that he would write. Uh, the fact that he died before he ever heard the concerto isn't the reason that we don't have the three movements that we were promised. The truth lies in another letter that he wrote to a friend in August 1893, where he says, I realize that this concerto is of depressing and threatening length. A little phrase that was running through my own mind as I was deciding what I might say this afternoon. Um, so eventually, he decided to leave the concerto. It was the single standalone movement that we know today. So now that we know how the music came to be, let's explore a little bit of what's involved in converting what was a symphony into a concerto. The word concerto comes from Italian, probably from the conjunction of two Latin words, conserere, meaning to tie or to weave or to join, and certamen, meaning competition or fight or contest. The idea is that the two parties involved, in this case, the solo piano and the orchestra, alternate between episodes of cooperation, of opposition, and of independence. So let's have a little look at how Tchaikovsky achieves this. First, here is the opening theme of the symphony in its original form. Now, Tchaikovsky chooses this theme to introduce our soloist. The piano takes the melody, and the orchestra cooperates in a more accompanimental role. Let's have a listen to the concerto version. Fantastic, thank you. Um, Tchaikovsky also explores the idea of cooperation through a sense of dialogue 
Let's listen to another passage from the symphony in which we hear the various sections of the orchestra responding to each other with a similar musical motif. The conversational nature of this music makes including the piano quite easy. Very little change to the essence of the music is necessary. Let's have a listen to the version from the concerto. Okay, so cooperation is clear. Independence speaks for itself. Let's listen to the second subject from the symphony in its original form. Now, Tchaikovsky chooses the calmness of this moment to give the piano its independence for the first time. The trouble with music that was originally conceived as a symphony is it doesn't necessarily lend itself well to soloistic writing. After all, I suppose, when Tchaikovsky first dreamed up his ideas, there, there was no soloist at all. And I think this conception as a symphony is behind the reason why he leaves the development section of this movement completely untouched. The piano doesn't play at all for almost two minutes. It's also the motivation behind the biggest criticism of this concerto, that the piano writing just isn't soloistic enough, that it doesn't have enough independence. Tchaikovsky addresses this by adding in the middle of the movement an enormous cadenza, which in its original form is over four minutes long, a quarter of the entire piece. This cadenza is based on uh, the themes, the subjects, the motifs that we hear earlier. And it's a tour de force of piano writing. I shan't spoil it for you now with a sneak preview any more than I want to ask Elaine to have to play it twice in one afternoon. Instead, let's move on. Let's talk lastly about opposition. Throughout the concerto, we hear Tchaikovsky pit the might of the orchestra against the power of the piano. 
perhaps most notably in this short extract. That's the original symphonic version. When reworking this into a concerto, Tchaikovsky just divides the material and literally sets the piano and orchestra in opposition with one another. Let's listen to the concerto version. Now, the trouble for any soloist when competing with a full symphony orchestra is that they are always destined to lose, at least as far as volume is concerned. But these two short extracts actually afford us a glimpse into how the composer tackles ensuring that the piano can always be heard. Let's listen to them one more time, and I want you to notice how Tchaikovsky removes some of the brass writing to make room for the piano sound. Now, the brass are these guys over here, but I want you to keep an eye, or, or perhaps an ear, also on the timpani. Uh, Ian gives a wave. Yes, lovely. Uh, notice how Tchaikovsky changes his dynamics to get him out the way of the piano so that we can hear what's going on. First, the symphonic version. And now, the altered version from the concerto. Bravo. Once again, Tchaikovsky's warning of straying to a depressing and threatening length is nagging at the back of my mind. So I feel that that's more than enough insight for this afternoon. All that remains is to thank you for your time, for your patience, to thank our soloist this afternoon, Elaine Shelton. And to thank the magnificent orchestra of New York City Ballet. We leave you with the closing coda from the first movement of Tchaikovsky's symphony in E-flat.